And so my challenge to people is get to know one person and maybe it's like, yeah, get to know the guy that sits on your corner who's homeless if we want to go that direction. Because ultimately, like those people like Will have learned to survive without the things you think you need. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is my chance to talk with people who are doing extraordinary things in the world because they saw something wrong that needed to be made right, and they gave a damn about it. This is episode 12 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast with my friend, Ricky Staub. Ricky is an incredible filmmaker. By his mid-20s, he was living the dream. Well, the dream for some, anyway. He was an assistant producer for Sam Mercer, who co-produced most of M. Night Shyamalan's films. While in Philadelphia working on The Last Airbender, he met a man that changed his life and the course of his career. I don't want to say too much about that or about the rest of his story because it's so good and I want you to hear it from the horse's mouth. Does anyone know why that's a saying, by the way? Horses can't talk. I'll have to look that up later. Anyway, I want you to hear it from Ricky. Some of the circumstances in his life caused him to leave Hollywood film industry and go start a world-class filmmaking company that employs and mentors a very marginalized group of people. Again, you'll have to listen to our chat to find out more about who I'm talking about. We tried to do this talk once before at a park in Calabasas, California, just north of L.A. Ricky had just returned from a big shoot and wasn't feeling well, so we decided to redo the talk a couple weeks ago. I'm glad we did because there is some real gold in this talk for creatives, entrepreneurs, and world changers alike. This was a super fun conversation, and I literally can't wait for you to hear it. Without further ado, here's my chat with the one and only Ricky Staub. Okay, everyone, we have Ricky Staub on the line. Welcome to the podcast, Ricky. What's up? How are you? I'm very good. Great. I'm excited to uh, have this combo. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. For everyone out there, this is Ricky Staub from the Neighborhood Film Company, and we'll get into that. Um, a little quick context. First of all, Ricky's amazing uh, for a lot of reasons. One of them is I was out in LA a couple weeks ago uh, to do some interviews, and Ricky agreed. He's coming back from some work. Ricky's very busy, coming back from some work. And he was actually driving through the city or the town in like north of L.A. to get to his house and um, on the way back from the airport. And he agreed to stop at some park uh, to do the interview with us with dogs running. You know, some some guy was throwing a ball to his dog and there's kids on the swing set. And um, a couple times in the interview, like this, uh, this electric truck, electrical truck would pull in and do his backing up beeping noise. Um, and on top of that, Ricky was not feeling well. And so there were sneezes and coughs and sniffles. And um, we exchanged a few, actually, no, not exchange. I gave him some uh, cough drops. And anyway, Barely we decided survived. to give it a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we survived. And we decided to just give it a reboot. Um, it was a great interview, but just for your sakes, uh, listeners, so that you know you don't have to listen through all the, the sniffling and the whatever great content but we're going to give it a go here i know this will be a good conversation so anyway all that to say welcome to the podcast we're super excited you're here ricky oh thank you and i guess it's very rare that i get to do a retake so hopefully my answers are even better this time well i well they'll never know because we're not going to release that other oh, stuff i'll just good. keep that for in the archives i'll just keep that for blooper reel i actually did think about taking that video and just uh, having somebody edit it and, and only have the uh, like the sneezes and the coughs in it, so it'll be like three <laughs> minutes long, and just oh, have so that. I, I think that would be I think that'd be funny. Maybe we'll do that. If we do, we'll release it and uh, let you all listen. Um, but anyway, let's let's uh, get into this. So I'm very excited to have you here um, for lots of reasons. One, you do incredible video work. I've been aware of you for uh, multiple years now, but didn't really get into what you guys are doing. And then a few weeks ago, you released this film uh, online called The Cage, which I'll have you explain later. But that really just blew me away. I'm sitting here watching the film, pretty floored, uh, you know, some tears dropping out here. And they're just a very impactful video. And so you do beautiful uh, videography work. Um, but just there's also many components to what you do that I want to talk about that 
that show how much you give a damn. And so before we get to talk about Neighborhood Film Company, why don't you tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, to go back as far as you want to into your into the recesses of your childhood. Tell us <laughs> all the deep, dark you know, secrets. Yeah, exactly. Deep, dark secrets. Tell us a little bit about uh, your growing up, your family, and then kind of take us uh, through all the circumstances, situations that led you to be, um, you know, this f- filmmaker working on pretty incredible films for huge brands, which will, I'm sure you'll mention some of them. So yeah, go, go for it. Yeah. So, you know, when I, I'm kind of, I guess a product of, I've always wanted to, Uh, make movies since I was really young. Um, And as soon as I could get a camera, I had one. Um, I was, you know, I wrote a script when I was, gosh, I think I must have been in third or fourth grade. Oh, wow. And uh, my aunt was a producer in Hollywood. So I was, you know, and I'm living in, gosh, I don't know where I was at the time, maybe somewhere on the East Coast. We moved a lot when I was a little kid. But I remember writing a script. Uh, she would send me scripts that she had gotten a hold of, so I, you know, I knew how to mimic basically the format. And my dad had bought me, or not even bought me, he brought home a computer from. Uh, he managed hotels, and at the time, I remember the computer had just like black and yellow typing abilities. I don't even really, I don't really remember even how it functioned. <laughs> but I remember t- I wrote a whole script. Uh, it's called Half Soldiers, if I could find it. But it was basically about two kids, a guy and a girl, that broke into a military base to save their parents. And they, like, train in the attic. And I equated it to basically Home Alone, but in a military base. So even then, I knew how to pitch the story. And I would put together a treatment and everything because I had seen, you know, stuff my aunt had sent me. And I remember my cousin, uh, she, uh, another family member, she's older, like an aunt, she was working as a writer's assistant on the adventures of Briscoe County Jr. If you guys remember that show. And so she would send me all the scripts from that show. And so anyway, I put together a whole package and I remember sending it to my aunt and her telling me that she thought it was really cute. And it really pissed me off. Cause I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like <laughs> I want you to make this movie. <laughs> and so, and at the time I was written it so I could, star in it you know i wanted to be the next macaulay culkin i had big big high hopes but uh but yeah i mean basically since i was little i'd always wanted to make movies i mean i remember even um it's hilarious when i would play with gi joes it was always in context to a like a scene in a movie being filmed so one of the gi joes was the director other gi joes were like the actors you know they would do takes there was like I would use the TV remote as like a crane, a piece of equipment. I was like one of those kids that nerded out on all the behind the scenes uh, stuff that ever came out. I mean, so in a lot of ways, I'm totally getting to partake in my childhood dreams to 100%. Did you ever make that Half Soldiers uh, film? No, you know, but I'm sure there's a time and a place for it along my career path here because I still think it's it's a great pitch. But uh, I, I don't, and I have to find the script. My dad swears it's in the basement somewhere, but my dad's basement is packed with boxes. So I've never made the effort to actually find it. Was your family uh, supportive of your filmmaking ventures and all your dreaming? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I've always had a, a supportive family. I, you know, when we chatted last time, I gave you a little history of it's, I had said our family is like a dysfunctional Brady bunch. Um, it's lots of marriages <laughs> and lots of siblings from different marriages, but we've all lived together at a certain point. But I feel like uh, I've always felt supported. I mean, there was a time in like college and after college where I could tell from my parents, there was like, you know, if this acting filmmaking writing thing doesn't pan out you know you can come work you know at the hotel or do like sure join a bit you know i got business connections uh but i would say for the most part my family was always you know supportive of whatever i wanted to do um so yeah i can't i can't really say i was like you know going against their wishes to be a doctor or something like that sure uh did you did you go to school for filmmaking? What did what did your higher education look like, or did you just go out on your own and kind of wing it? 
Uh, a little bit of both. I went, I originally went to college. I went to a college, Azusa Pacific, and I studied theater there. Uh, they aren't known for that by any means, but when I, when I first got into, so when I was younger, I'd make these videos and I was always shooting stuff. You know, I was shooting like skate videos for friends or any project I could film, I'd film. And then, um, my older sister, who's 10 years older than me, actually got me into acting. She made me audition for this thing in Chicago um, and I got like a part and that really turned me into that. And I started doing, I think I did a musical my senior year of high school. And I was like, oh man, I should do the acting thing. And then I went out to LA and, um, but I quickly realized that I really loved the writing and then I got into the filmmaking again. Um, uh, but I had already gone through like half of my degree and it's expensive to go to college <laughs> anywhere. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just finish out. Um, but what I started doing was basically working for free for anyone that would let me be on set. And so I did everything from PAing for commercials to I interned at a casting office. I, you know, worked as an assistant to anyone that would let me. Um, and so I just kind of got, you know, I dipped my toe into, um, I guess, production in that sense where I got my education. And eventually I started being a PA consistently for different people and, you know, as the industry goes, it's not really about your resume. It's, it truly is about who you know because you just get referred to Absolutely. people. Um, I mean, I haven't made a resume since, I think, a business class in college. Um, but I eventually, I got a job. My, I, I, would, I would say my like real break was I got hired to be the assistant to Sam Mercer, who is a producer who's done tons of films. Uh, at the time he was working, uh, on films for M night Shyamalan and I got brought on to be his assistant for a film called the last airbender, which took me from LA then to Philadelphia where I spent two and a half years working on that one movie. Um, we did some other projects in between there, but I lived literally on location in Philadelphia. I mean, basically moved there. Um, and at that point I was writing a ton Dan, who's my business partner now, uh, we, we would write, even while I was in Philly, I would actually wake up, um, before I'd go to work and write with him or after work, depending on our schedules, but we were always writing together. I was always trying to film stuff on the weekends. Um, but at the same time I was learning a ton of practical business side to filmmaking at that level, which was invaluable. I see how it worked in my life now because it gave me all the tools to right. basically start neighborhood film company, you know, four years after working for Sam. Yeah. So before you mentioned, before you brought up Sam Mercer, um, I, I was going to ask, you know, usually I, I totally hear you and, and agree with you about the resume versus who you know and who you've worked with. And um, do, do you think that was the pivotal? Because um, a lot of people work as PAs and do stuff in the film industry, but they don't get to not everybody gets to build, you know, a, a, a reputable film company doing work for some really big brands, which you'll mention some of them soon. So do you do you see that as kind of a pivotal shift, a pivotal change in your career, that one working on with Sam on that one movie or was it or were there others like that? No, Sam was definitely pivotal because not only did I work on that movie, but then I worked uh, we did a movie at the same time called Devil that came out. Um, that was actually written and produced by M. Night Shyamalan. So while we're doing Airbender, we also did Devil. And then I went on to work on Snow White and the Huntsman after that. So I was with him, and and I came on to the tail end of The Happening. So there was some crossover of projects. But, I mean, I remember very vividly to this day still when I got that job. Uh, I, I obviously knew who Sam was, and I was nervous. And, oh, my God, this would be absolutely incredible. And I interviewed with him. I think we probably, it was probably like 40 minutes. We sat together and I remember he offered me the job um, on the spot after. And I went back to my car and I remember I was shaking and I started bawling. I, was, I remember crying in my car because um, I had worked my whole time through college. I was paying for college myself. Um, I was working as a server at California Pizza Kitchen um, and I worked all through high school too, like paid for everything myself. And I just remember this feeling of, 
oh my God, I'm not going to have to be a server my whole life. Because <laughs> uh, it, it had gotten right. to the point where I, it was hard for me to imagine that I was ever going to leave that life. Um, now, obviously being a server afforded me the flexibility to write and make films and you know I could work at nights and all those things. But anyone out there who knows that life, you know, you're grinding and pursuing your dreams and your family's looking at you like, okay, Ricky just paid for his own college at a private university and now he's working as a server, you know, trying to make money telling stories. You know, there's this, I feel pride of like, how, how long can I be a fool? Um, and when he offered me that job, I just knew the platform at which I would be working. Now, it necessarily wasn't like as a writer and director, but I knew, I didn't know the business. I didn't go to school for it, but I knew what I you know, something that Sam told me that really he stuck to and impacted me. He said, my goal for you is to be able to do 40% of my job so that I can go home earlier and be with my family. He said, there will be other assistants that can get me coffee and do my dry cleaning, but you are going to learn how to do what I do so that I don't have to do it. <laughs> and he stuck to that. And it was really hard. Like he was not an easy man to work for, but he was good and he trained me really well. And, uh, he's trained all his assistants previous to me that are now producers and doing amazing things. And I think, um, you know, kind of jumping ahead, but what the way he taught me was so indicative to what I took into my company on how I train apprentices as we call them. Um, because, you know, he only taught me what I really absolutely needed to know to make his life easier and to push the needle forward on a film. And so I wasn't, wasn't a liberal, liberal arts education happening in there. It was like a, you learn to do this and then I don't have to do it. And so, you know, by the end of my time with him, I was coordinating second unit shoots all over the world. I mean, I did a second unit shoot, an aerial unit in New Zealand from LA I did, you know, a second unit shoot in Philly for another movie. And, you know, he was basically giving me all this autonomy to run these units, which were basically like little mini movies um, getting shot and executed. And so the responsibility at which he gave me and then the actual tools he taught me were just, I mean, exponentially invaluable. I, I don't think I even knew. I knew at the time that it was special what I'd gotten when I, you know, rewinding back to that moment in my car. But I didn't, I don't think I knew how impactful it would be for the whole course of my, I mean, even now as a director, you know, if you're shooting like a million dollar commercial, I actually have the awareness of the nuts and bolts that is happening behind the scenes to make my ideas come to life. I'm not like this artist they found out in the woods, you know, oil painting and right. like flew into LA. It's like, <laughs> I actually know, you know, when I come up with a concept, I also have this producer's mind where I can actually functionally step in to help determine, you know, I think it's what it makes our company lean and mean in some regards because I have, you know, I'm not just, I know how to actually execute my ideas too when I come to the table with them. So there's like a technicality too that I can bring to my vision, which I don't think I would have had ever having not worked for Sam, but really working alongside all the A-list people for four and a half years that I was given access to, you know, working for something yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are incredible opportunities. So on, on this podcast, as you know, um, I am talking with people who are, in, in my mind, in my view, they're game changers, people who see something wrong, see something wrong in the system or in our environment or in society or with a certain group of people. And instead of overlooking it like most do, they decide to do something about it. They see something wrong and they decide to do something about it. And I call that giving a damn. A lot of people yeah. call that giving a damn. So I have you, you know. on here, giving a shit, <laughs> yeah. all of that. Um, I have you on here to talk about Neighborhood Film Company. I, I, I want you to talk about the kinds of work that you do. I want to talk about who you've worked with because I think that's, you know, it's really incredible. I think that's inspiring for the many people that are listening that are videographers, filmmakers, they're creatives that might think, oh, I can never do that. I can't do that. But so I want you to talk about that. But But let's first talk about the, the certain often overlooked demographic of people that you're going after and saying, I want to invest in you and um, take you to a level that you wouldn't be able to get to without my help. And so uh, explain, let's first talk about that and then we'll go talk about some of the other accomplishments and whatnot. But I think that's uh, what you're about to share. I, when I heard about this, I, I was just floored and bl blown away that that uh, it's, just, it's, it's a, such a simple 
creative way to, to make, have an impact on someone's life, um, and give them a life they wouldn't have otherwise. So why don't you just expound on that a little bit? Cause people are like, what the hell is he talking about? So <laughs> yeah. go ahead and talk about that for a little I mean, bit. So I guess basically, you know, what on the forefront neighborhood film company is a commercial film company. We make commercials, broadcast online, you know, branded content, you know, we're working or have worked for brands, Nike, Reebok, Universal, Jeep, um, you know, major, major brands on major, major shoots. Sure. But what makes us unique is we have a social mission where we hire men coming out of incarceration to work full time at our company through an apprentice program um, that we've set up. But rewinding before that has come to be what it is now. Bef so before I started the company, I was in Philadelphia working for Sam Mercer, as I'd mentioned. Uh, what this opportunity afforded me was uh, I was living in a place where I didn't I didn't know anyone outside of people that I was becoming friends with on um, the job. And so I had an availability of time that wasn't normally granted to me, you know, when you're you have friends and you're in the hustle and bustle of life. And, you know, for me, the uh, the initial reason that I started the company was really a uh, it was it had to do with my faith, which I, I don't know where you or listeners land on this, but I've tried to explain it without including this component and it becomes really weird. So just bear with me. Yeah, sure. Go for it. I mean, that's, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the faith thing's an important part if that's part yeah, of it. So go it, for it. It yeah. wouldn't happen without it. And so, you know, at, to give you like a quick, I guess, up to this point in my life, you know, in high school I became a Christian, um, but I, I really diagnosed it to nothing more than I kept doing the same exact things I was always doing, except now I felt guilty about it. And it wasn't until after college when I'm living in Philadelphia where I started to ask myself, why do I call myself a Christian? I'm not, you know, if there is a God that made the universe, he must have gone through, you know, sending his son to die for me for more than me to just be a really nice person. Like, what does this even mean? Who is Jesus? All these questions. I'm like, why am I even identifying as a Christian? Because in my new environment, no one was a Christian. So... It seemed weird to me that I kept telling people I was. And so I opened the Bible for myself and I was like, I'm going to decide now as a, you know, I don't know, I was 25, 26, if I actually believe this, if I want to continue telling people this is what I believe. And something that really like stuck out to me was a scripture in Matthew where it's this allegory about the end times when Jesus returns and he's going to say there are going to be people that knew me and people that didn't. And the way that the people knew me was when they took care of the people that were broken and suffering and hurting and uh, dejected from society, they were actually taking care of me. And so I thought this was really interesting because the way that I read it in my new, like I'm just opening the book for myself and going to ignore all the crap that I hear on the news or all the crappy preaching I hear in church. I'm just going to, take it for face value, it seemed to me that I could have an actual encounter with Jesus, the son of God here today and not have to just wait till my ticket gets me into heaven when I die. And so I went to the streets and I started meeting people that were homeless in a very naive, like I made lunch. I remember I made lunch this one Saturday morning and uh, ended up meeting this guy named Will, who is this huge ripped black dude, and he looked like a football player, but he was homeless. And um, that was, you know, I, I remember I went up to him and I was like, "Hey, would you like to share a lunch with me?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure." And he's like, "Why are you handing out lunches?" And I said, "You know, I'm hoping to meet Jesus and a homeless person." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, well, I'm not Jesus, but I'll uh, I'll eat a lunch with you." So I was like, "I don't know if." He'd probably be looking at me like I'm the crazy person. Um, but we started meeting every weekend for months. And what I learned about his story is that he was in a cycle of poverty where uh, I didn't really understand what I know now is that he had been incarcerated at a very young age, had a record, couldn't get a job, was trying to avoid his former lifestyle, was now living on the street. Um, obviously, there's a great amount of depression, sadness all involved in this lifestyle and where he was at this point he had broken into an abandoned building during winter to get shelter from the cold and was uh, cited, given a ticket by the police, shows up to court, can't pay the ticket, so now he's going to do time. And this was incredibly frustrating to me. And so, you know, I call nonprofits and I 
do whatever, you know, I bought him a suit and getting him new shoes. I'm like, if you're going to go to court, you shouldn't look homeless at least. And all these things in this like very remedial effort. And, you know, I'm calling all these homeless shelters and da da da. And there's just, Oh, we're no, there's no room. Oh, you know, we prioritized women with children. There's all these little things I'm learning. And at the same time, now I'm just like immersing myself in scripture. Cause I'm like, I feel my heart changing and not that I was this, like evil person before I like started reading the Bible, but I was definitely very selfishly self-motivated. I loved my job. I loved the money I was making. I loved the opportunity afforded to me, but I would find myself obsessing over Will and these other people that I were, you know, he was just one of many people that I started to become genuinely friends with. And I was frustrated because I was like, I'm living most of my life in a direction that does nothing to lift a finger to change their circumstance. And it just seemed counterintuitive to what I was reading in the Bible, which was Jesus is like, I'm hungry to care for those that are broken. Had nothing to do with like being good or being, you know, moral enough. It was like, if you were a drunkard or a prostitute, Jesus came to free you of the burden of that life. And it was like captivating for me. I was like, man, why isn't this getting preached? You know, I'm just like falling in love with these people that everyone says are, you know, shouldn't work in our society or should be in jail or these prostitutes. Right, that are just right. Being the throwaway tra- people. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, Jesus would be like down to hang with, like be with these people. You know, something I learned about Jesus is that he always affirmed someone, someone's humanity first. There's never a time where he like came as judge. And it's like we are called to reflect him as an ambassador, not reflect God. Like God is the gavel holder, not us. And so that was something that I was just like kind of immersed in anyway. So I fast forward, I try to figure out, you know, what I can do for Will. I show up one Saturday and I never see him again. He, I guess went to jail when he went to court and I was foolish enough not to figure out where he would have gone. I didn't, he didn't have a phone. Like we would always just meet at this pizza on pine downtown and I, I never saw him again. It was super sad. Um, Still to this day, you've never seen him. No. I kind of like now that I like share this story sometimes because it comes up and I'm like, man, maybe he'll hear it or maybe I'll, you know, we work with these federal judges. But I mean, I don't know his last name. I, I can't even, I have like this picture of him as this like big gentle giant. <laughs> so I only remember how like big his, I can't even like really see his face, which makes me sad. But you know, he was just one of many friends. And anyway, so I had this thought one night, I was just, you know, kind of staring up at the ceiling. I'm like, you know, no one's ever really asked me if I went to film school. No one has even asked me if I've ever gone to college. I literally just get jobs or got job. I got the job with Sam because I was recommended by multiple people. He never even looked at my resume. He just hired me on the spot. Like, oh, if so-and-so says you're good, you're good. And then I just proved my worth working for him. I was like, if I could do that for guys like Will, uh, I think I could, it could be a way to heal and repair their lifestyle. Cause it just, it seemed counterintuitive to me again, when I, when I took scripture against their circumstances, like, okay, so you F up when you're nine, 10, 13, 15 years old, whatever you go to jail for this to that, the rest of your life, you're under punishment for this, um, And it's just, it wasn't grace as I came to understand it, that we were literally pardoned for free to have good things. Um, That's what the good news is, is like, you're a total fuck up, but I'm going to like take the penalty for what you did. So just go and love people. I was like, that seemed pretty awesome to me. How could I do that? And so I eventually, um, I met with this woman, her name's Sister Mary Scullion. Um, I started sending out super weird, sappy emails like, um, hey, I think I'm gonna quit my job and go live with the poor to be like an advocate for them to get them jobs and blah, blah, blah. And she emailed me back. She said, don't quit your job. I have tons of nonprofit stuff set up here to get people jobs. I don't wanna have to get you one. She's like, let's meet. She had me over to, uh, she lived actually in one of the shelters she ran. Now I'm telling you, this is like a 20 million plus nonprofit a year, like massive. Um, and Sister Mary is not a nun that you would think, like she was street clothes, kind of rowdy, gets arrested, defending rights of the poor. 
Um, I mean, we sat and had a cores together <laughs> when I went and met with her and I shared with her, this is my heart. And she was really the first person to tell me, A, I wasn't crazy. And two, she's like, I think the Holy Spirit's moving in you. I think that this is not something you should ignore. How can I support you? And so I spent the next year before actually quitting my job, business planning with her, writing out my ideas, my vision until eventually it got to the point. This was in the spring of 2011. I walked into Sam's office and I said, I'm quitting and I'm starting this company for these reasons. And, uh, I'll never forget the moment cause I wanted to throw up <laughs> because it was like basically quitting my, what did he say? quitting my dream job. Um, you know, he was very gracious, totally understood. He definitely, it was one of those moments like basically out of a movie where he tried to be like, what do you need more money? I can give you more money. Can't you wait till after this next movie? Like all these options. And I'm like, please don't make this any harder than it already is. I, yes, more money would be amazing because I'm in massive debt from my schooling. Or yes, I understand we're going to basically travel Europe shooting a $200 million movie and all my dreams will be fulfilled. But please, you know, let me quit. Um, you know, and he was supportive, but I, you know, and I have reconnected with him since. And, you know, there was definitely, and other people in my life during that time, they thought I was absolutely crazy. I think it helps now that I didn't totally fall on my face, but I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, when I quit working for him, I literally got in my car a couple, you know, weeks later, drove across the country to Philadelphia, and I lived in a homeless shelter for the first nine months of the company, which sounds really cool and like, Ooh, what a radical like Christian, but it was terrifying. I mean, I literally cried myself to sleep full of anxiety. What the hell did I do? I just quit my dream job. I mean, I'm telling you, you'll never read the Bible with more crystal clarity than when you just quit your dream job and your massive salary begging for it to be true. <laughs> and so I, uh, felt like a complete fool. I, quickly was like, why did I do this? I don't know how to a run a company, start a company. And you know what? I'd never actually ever made a commercial yet. Here I am starting a commercial film company with nothing. And so, um, you You're know, crazy. I, yes, I was, you know, and <laughs> my family again, very supportive, but also kind of like, you know, maybe you wait till like you're a millionaire and you know, you've made movies and like, this can be your like, altruistic side project, maybe not make it your livelihood. But I knew in my heart that if I didn't do it, then I would never do it. I would, I was, I would, I wouldn't be able to do it. I knew it. I was so, so convicted is the only word. Like it weighed on me in my spirit so heavy. It's phenomenal. It was like a physical anchor in my heart of like, I felt like the Lord saying, you are going to do this even though you don't want to. Um, is the only way I can equate it because I've really never had much of a, like a sensation like that, but it was like plaguing my mind, like a nag, like, please stop talking about this. Like, and I would go back and forth like, all right, God, I can do it. I can do it. And then, you know, it was something amazing would happen at work or Sam would like promote me or he would like compliment me in front of like all these filmmaker, like people at the studio. And I'd be like, oh my God, I can't leave this. This is incredible. You know, it's like. It was right, like a right. mental like jujitsu, um, like it was like a cage match in my brain, um, and so uh, it was hard. But yeah, I eventually quit, started a company, and you know, I could go on and on about the absurdities that happened after that. But so basically, a recap of the last ten minutes is sometimes when you give a damn about other people, it's not going to be as fuzzy and as sexy and as cool as these like feel good videos that you find on YouTube, right? Where, you know, the, 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 the Seeger roast music's playing in the background and ev everything just feels like, right. But like in this case, it's like, no, you get, you had to give up your dream. Now you're living a different type of dream. Now, if people go look at the work you guys have done, it's incredible. Like it worked out, right? Yes. But you didn't know that for no. nine months sleeping in a homeless shelter, and you had to push through all the doubt and the anxiety and the fear that you f were feeling in order to like stick true to what you knew you had to do, that all the, the dams that you had to give, it took these nine months sleeping in a homeless shelter and just a lot of risk taking yeah. to get to the place where you are now. 
Yeah, and it really makes you question, like, when you keep it in context to, like, this podcast, you know, like, how much of a damn did I really give, you know, because right, I had made peace to some degree with the fact that, you know, ultimately, you know, where, you know, I guess where I landed on how much I gave a damn, I realized what I gave a damn about the most was it wasn't actually helping someone. It turned into something else, like... I felt like my heart and my spirit had been channeled towards this like mission all of a sudden. But really what it came down to, cause I'm telling you, I thought about this, like you wouldn't imagine about how many different ways I could cut what I felt like was what I needed to do. And ultimately I thought about myself basically on my deathbed and it had nothing to do with me being like, how many people could I help by the time I die? It had to do with this was, what if God isn't real? What is re- what have I really lost? So I'm dying or I die and he's not real, right? And then I just become dirt next to a tree in a cemetery and I actually have no conscience or conscious, like I can't even have a thought about how I pursued a God that isn't real. So, okay, nothing's lost. I can't even remember that I gave up my dream job for this stupid like mission and it didn't pan out or it did pan out. I, I'll have no recollection of it either way. So what's really the loss here? Or God is real. And it wasn't about me being like, oh, I'm going to be so good because I'm going to do this like holy good thing that he'll let me into heaven. What it was is that what I read and digested in scripture was if I lived according to like what he might actually be prompting me to do, I could experience heaven now and not only for myself, but I could actually extend it to someone. Now I could actually be a part of someone's like cherishing and loving them now versus being like, Hey, you're a drug addict. So you better just like pray the sinner's prayer. And then when you die, it'll all be good. Like I understood scripture to be like something that was attainable and digestible to be experienced now. And that to me seemed worth chasing. And I knew that if I died, Let's say, you know, at the time, I'm like, I'm going to give up my job. It never works out. I have to go work at a coffee shop or shit. I have to go back to California Pizza Kitchen. That literally, I'm like, I'm thinking that's going to happen. And for the rest of my life, I have some nine to five that I hate. And I think about, I'm the guy that gave up the dream job with Sam Mercer to chase this pretend God that didn't exist. If God was real and he actually didn't, you know, give me all the great things that have happened to neighborhood now, I don't think God would ever say, you stupid idiot, why did you quit your job for me? That was so dumb. Like, I hooked you up with Sam Mercer and you go and quit. That would never be the conversation to come out of God's mouth because he would say, well done. Like, you actually wanted to be closer to me. So ultimately, all that to say is like, my decision rests on the fact that I was going to die someday. And if I could have a taste of being close to like that good God now, I was going to take it. It was worth it to me because I think that it's actually wise for people to think about the fact that they will spend most of their existence, no matter what they believe, dead in a version of death. Like someone who lived 500 years ago has been dead longer than they've been alive. If you think about it, it's completely morbid, but it helped me like make peace with my decision when I had to. You know, obviously, like, you know, six years later, I'm so, uh, I'm so glad it worked out because it's awesome, but I had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, so you guys do one apprentice at a time, correct? How does that, how do you get that uh, person and how long do they stay? Those sorts of things. Yeah. So now um, the way that the company's set up is if you look at it on a yearly calendar, Basically, um, January through the middle of March is a recruiting period. And we work with these federal judges in Philadelphia that run a program called the star reentry program where they're working with formerly incarcerated nonviolent offenders who are on probation and have to report to a judge once a week. And then these judges as well with lawyers, attorneys, students are all helping to expunge records and place them into job opportunities and build relationships with the city. And so that's, we met them. What we really were attracted to with them was 
the level of accountability that they're offering um, these men. Whereas we used to be partnered with multiple nonprofits across the city, but my struggle with other nonprofits is I couldn't actually get a counselor or someone to call me back in an effective manner. So we ended up basically just partnering just with the judges because I literally have the cell phone of a judge and I can text him if need be in a pinch. And they understood the level of like what we were trying to accomplish here. Whereas I felt like other nonprofits were kind of dumping people on us because they're totally overworked and way too many people on their case. And I have a, that's like a whole nother conversation. So, um, at this point now we work exclusively with these judges. Um, they're actively recruiting people to, um, be a part of our apprenticeship. They know the type of people were, you know, after we've had, multiple successful apprentices come through our training now. So then there's a really long application on purpose. So it's like the size of a college application, which is meant to set up and deter people. Um, you know, it's like the first round of an interview and then they go, they submit the application, which has short answers, recommendations, background checks, blah, blah, blah. They do a bunch of round of interviews and then we select one individual um, to participate in the apprenticeship, which is full-time paid, starts middle of March and runs through uh, November. And they're essentially a production assistant at the company in the office and on set. And they're learning all the business side of the process. They're not learning to be directors or editors. Certainly if they have creative, you know, goals for their life, that can be addressed once they learn to do the basics well. And so our platform is really to set them up with administrative skills that are transferable to multiple careers all across the board, which then they can leverage our contacts and the people they're meeting to basically have a career outside of even filmmaking. They can you know, move on to, and most of the apprentices actually don't have interest in filmmaking. We have yet to have an apprentice who is finished with us and gone on to be like a full-time producer production assistant or anything they all you know have taken what they've learned with us and applied it to uh, different business avenues so i think um i'm just trying to think through how humans think and i'm sure i don't know i don't know what percentage but i'm guessing some people that are hearing that just heard your last three minutes explaining who you take on and how and it's one person at a time some people might be thinking and i hope not but you know it's just it's it's fine if you're thinking this, but I just want to challenge it for a second. You're thinking, oh, they're only doing one person at a time. Like what? You know, they could be doing more. They could be, they could be affecting more people, helping change more people. And I just want to challenge you right now. If you're listening and thinking that you're not bad for thinking that, but I want to challenge that. No, don't think, oh, it's only one person. Think, holy shit. It's one person that could have their life drastically changed. That one person might have, been stuck in minimum wage jobs or, you know, living off of government assistant assistance or living on the street. And that one person was taken out of that, put into this really healthy work environment to learn skills they never learned before. And think about the individuals that have gone on to change the world, that have changed entire industries. Uh, the, the, the Martin Luther King Juniors, that was one person that started a, a literal revolution. Um, and you think about people all throughout history, all it takes is one person to do something incredible. It doesn't like yeah, it's great that there are other organizations, you know, uh, whatever, you know, I love charity water, you know, 6 million people with water, like they're, you know, they're trying to go to the masses and fix this huge uh, systemic problem in parts of the world. But this is, this is incredible. Like one person that now gets a chance at a better life. And so if you're thinking that, I, you're not terrible by any stretch of the imagination, but I just want to challenge your thinking. They're like, no, this is incredible that they're investing for se seven, eight months a year in this person that's been you know, hand-selected, and now they get to go on with these skills and experiences to get a better job and you know, maybe uh, get their family back or start a family um, and now have a better life for themselves. So I, I, think it's, I think it's incredible. I just wanted to throw that in because as I was hearing you say that, I was thinking, ah, I wonder if people are, you know, this might come up in someone's brain. And I wanted to quickly kill that as quickly as possible um, because it's incredible. And it's a totally fair assessment. Like we, I think for, for that reason, we're actually not a very like sexy mission because, you know, I, and I, and I've said this before, you know, like feeding the hungry or the thirsty is a totally different thing than what we're doing. You know, we're, 
we're not an aid relief company. Like we are, I approach these apprentices as though I'm recruiting raw, untapped talent to benefit the bottom line of my company. It's a totally different mindset. I think, again, like what Charity Water is doing is fantastic. They should be helping 6 million people a year. Like the volume of people makes sense. Um, but when it comes to actually rehabilitating someone's career and their mental performance and their physical barriers, I'm sorry, but it is completely asinine to me that nonprofits think they can do it when they have 30, 40, 50 people on their caseload. I actually think it's literally, you might as well just throw money out the window because it's not like that was part of what was hard for me when I would talk to Will and he would tell me about these resume classes or this guy that I met in the shelter who told me he was an electrician. I was like, I'm sorry, dude, you aren't going to get a job be above me. I'm college educated. I have tons of support. I can hold myself in a meeting. I'm well dressed. Like you aren't going to get a job over me. And that's what was really like hard for me to swallow is that I felt like people that were actually close friends of mine were being sold a lie. It was a complete fantasy. And it is a hard truth that I think, you know, nonprofits, I get scolded for saying this, but I was like, I think your main mission is really just to keep your jobs. Like you have to put the bar so low, like as long as they show up to class and are like breathing, they'll get a certificate and then we can keep our funding. I mean, that's a pretty crass way of putting it, but I'd be challenged to like show me any different. And there are some great like workforce development nonprofits out there, but honestly, I don't see a lot of them that I think people are having success in these environments in spite of the system, not because of it. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Give everyone a 60 second. So I mentioned at the beginning this uh, film, The Cage. Give everyone a 60 second quick overview of what this film is and why they should go watch it because I want everyone listening, everyone, everyone <laughs> to go just Google that neighborhood film company, The Cage. It'll come up. You've got to watch this thing. So give everybody a 60 second why they should go watch it. You know, The Cage is really to me was an ensemble piece of what the struggle is growing up in a broken neighborhood like someone like Will grew up in. And I really wanted to challenge viewers' notion of, you know, would you as a young kid in this environment had made any different choices? Um, you know, I really wanted to give people, I guess, a lens into the hood, so to speak, on how I saw it, both its brokenness and its beauty, and challenge people to see it differently because, and, and it's a great quote, it was, um, a guy that I worked with to write the film, um, not I didn't write it with him, but like the inspired, he's a, a coach in these neighborhoods. And you know, he's experienced like kids bringing guns to practice or you know, their parents selling their jersey for drug money. All these things that these kids are up against just to play basketball, you know, and given all the temptations in these neighborhoods that sell drugs and make tons of money and none of their families are going to college, like what decisions would you make if you were this kid? And he said, you know, what makes, I think, people most proud of the cage from these neighborhoods is that previous to it, you know, one of the most popular binoculars into the hood was a show like The Wire, which really just shows the hard gritty truth, but nothing that's beautiful about it. And what I think is that you can actually find and discover a lot of beauty in people's brokenness um, when you just view it differently. And so to me, the cage um, was very intentionally, a, I wanted people to see how I viewed this neighborhood, which I'm not from. Uh, I lived there for, you know, five years, but um, I don't know that. I mean, to me, it's, that's not really like a synopsis on what it's about. I mean, it's about a kid playing basketball and like, right. You know, <laughs> the hard choices he's faced with, but, you know, I guess the deeper notion is, you know, what it, I guess to see the neighborhood and, you know, very intentionally made it for a short film as an audacious effort to make basically an ensemble film that isn't like two people talking at a diner. Right. Yeah. It's a great film. Everybody needs to go watch it. Uh, Ricky, as we begin to wrap up, this is the last like kind of serious question that I'd love that I'd like to ask you. You know, the people listening to this podcast are a small but ever-growing family of people who want to change the world in big ways, in small ways, 
one person, many people using all different means and resources, right? I've heard so many incredible stories and I'm really excited about what's to come. What would you, from your experience, the things you've been through, what are two or three action steps for somebody that's not doing much right now, right? They're kind of stuck in a in a nine to five kind of situation and they don't really know what to do and it's kind of daunting so they just decide to do nothing instead of something and we've all been there, right? They, 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 they resort to, you know, uh, binge watching on Hulu instead of just a little bit of time given toward this thing that they actually give a damn about. What are some quick, like two or three actionable steps that people listening today could implement, like in the next 24 hours, things that you've learned that that they could just begin to do right away to get on their path to give more dams in the, today than they did yesterday? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, I think in a lot of way, people like binge give, <laughs> like you're saying they binge watch TV. I sure. think they like binge give a damn, like they watch some, you know, video on Upworthy and ball their eyes out because of this like homeless man that's like reconnected with their family and they're like, holy shit, here's a thousand dollars. And they feel good because they're like, oh my God, I like was moved. But then, you know, like you're saying, then like three months go by and it's like, oh, I haven't given a damn in three months. I think the hardest, I think the harder challenge or like the more even practical challenge though is, you know, every single person, whether, you know, they're guys like Will that are homeless or they're, you know, people in your office, everyone's hurting. You know, if you know someone, you know that their life isn't perfect. I think if you have a view of someone like everything is great in their life, you just don't really know them. And so my challenge to people is get to know one person and maybe it's like, yeah, get to know the guy that sits on your corner who's homeless if we want to go that direction. Because ultimately, like those people like Will have learned to survive without the things you think you need. What Will didn't have was someone who gave a damn about his life. You know, you can watch people live in the most uncomfortable, disgusting circumstances and actually have joy because they have each other. And I guess my challenge to someone in the next 24 hours is give a damn about someone in a super small way and then just do it again the next day. Like, don't think about how you're going to change the world because that's not where I started. I started with an inclination in my heart to read my Bible, actually read it. Then I started with like, I'm going to make some lunches. Then I met Will. Then I thought about Will for a long time. Then I met one other person. You know, it was like, I look at my life now and I'm basically six years into very tiny little steps of giving a damn. Like I didn't, and, and you know, to a lot of people, they don't even know who I am or what we're doing. Like, we're not like famous. Like, you know, we don't have like millions of views about our mission. Like no one actually even knows what we do half the time. And that's okay. You know, like you have to, I think, you know, just keep it small. I think that's, I think would be my practical advice is like, as you're listening to this podcast, you know, turn your head 360 degrees and see who you see and go, do I really know that person? Like, how can I actually give a damn about their life? Even if they're not homeless on the street, but definitely anyone that you see on the street is give a damn about them. Even if you think it's their fault. Like that was what also challenged me about Jesus was like, think about it. The guys sitting at tables with people that sell their bodies for money and people that are getting drunk with all the money they earn. Very easily, a lot of Christians in our country would say that's their fucking problem because they deserve it. Right. What Jesus says is, I know it's their problem and I still love them. So like, Absolutely. also don't judge the people that you see because... Um, I mean, that's why to me, my faith is such a motivating factor and isn't just like, I, oh, well you're in jail cause you shouldn't be. I tell this to apprentices all the time. You probably should have been in jail. It is, it was your fault, but you have a new like lease on life now. It's called grace. Like it's truly undeserved love. And so I guess that would be my challenge to people is to view others. I mean, you can believe in Jesus or not, or just think about the ways he thinks, but he viewed people in their humanity first, not in like whether they deserved his presence or not. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of Christians take that baggage into relationships of like, I'm better than you. Um, you're drunk on the street. Maybe if you didn't drink, you wouldn't be on the street. You know, it's like, there's none of that. Just like go be with that person, know them. Just start by getting to know their name and bringing them a hot meal, bringing them socks. I mean, it's like, yep. I guess again, just 
small. Yeah. You know, that would be my challenge. Yeah. Love that. That's really great. Uh, before I ask the last two questions, I want to take a moment to honor you. Um, as I'm listening to your story, you know, six years ago, you're with Sam Mercer working on a couple hundred million dollar movies that a lot of people that are listening have actually seen. And, you know, I, I have this inclination that if you would have stuck with Sam, you'd be doing huge work that everybody knows about today, right? On these big films. I, I, I mean, if people look at your the quality of your work today, they would they would see that, like you're the real deal. And so I want to honor you for the the sacrifices you've made and the the, the risks that you took and are taking uh, to start something that, you know, start a company that not only f- is you and it resonates your values and the kinds of work you want to do, but you're also adding this component where you are giving, helping people uh, with their second chance uh, at life or their 50th or 60th chance at life. And so I just want to, you know, just take a moment in front of, uh, in, not in front of, but in the ears of everybody that's listening, just I want to honor you for your love and the compassion that you've had on these men and uh, I'm sure if they were here today, they would say the same exact thing. So, you know, I want you to feel that honor and use it as fuel to like keep keep going because you're doing really, really good work, man. I appreciate it, dude. Really it means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, this is my one of my favorite questions to ask every time. Uh, this is the only question that stays the same every interview for the most part. Not really interview, chat. I'm trying to get the word interview out of my vocabulary because this is a, a chat. chat. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. chatting with you. So hypothetical scenario, uh, I am, you know, 60, 70 years from now, you, you die, you know, and you've done incredible work. Uh, your family and friends, the, the men that you have had a hand in changing their lives through your apprentice program, everybody, Sam Mercer's there, everybody's there, Will's there, and we're all at this service to honor you, and I'm giving your eulogy for some odd reason. What do you hope in, in, in four to five sentences, what do you hope that I'll say on that day? What do you hope that your legacy will be? I think I want my legacy to kind of going back to that question I wrestled with when I quit my job of, you know, what did I chase my whole life? And I'd like people to see the fruit of my life as one that brought the good news to people today. You know, I think that I was an ambassador for the love of Jesus, which I think is super unique for those reasons I outlined previous that he bestowed his love to people that didn't deserve it and never asked them once you deserve it, I'll give it to you. He just freely and continually gave it to people. Um, and I'd want, I will really truly want people to, not see that I was a good person because I think I am truly an asshole and I have really selfish, negative thoughts. But any good that you see in me is motivated and prompted and inspired and driven and fueled by a love I have for Jesus. And the product should be my life, not anything I say to convince people otherwise because I also don't believe that's my job either. Um, And so I think that's truly what I would want people to take away from me, you know, when I'm dead. (laughs) Well, I think, um, I think you're on your way to having that sort of a legacy. And and if, and if, (laughs) if I do give you eulogy and that's what I say, I think, um, you know, job well done. I just got the job. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You did. Uh, I'll, I'll let them know later on. I'll be like, you know, seriously, yeah, I need no to one give... signed up yet. So yeah, you can so totally I'm, give it. I'm the eulogy giver. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So this is your, as we wrap up here for reels this time, uh, this is your chance to tell everybody where they can find what you guys are doing, where they can keep up with you, with neighborhood film company, um, where they can go watch the cage, those sorts of things as we wrap yeah. up here. Uh, there's the basics neighborhood film company.com is our website. But on social media, I'd say the best place to find us is on Instagram. Our handle is neighborhood film. I actually personally run that. So it's, I always tell people it's honestly the easiest way to get a hold of me too, besides email, because my email can get bogged down, especially when I'm on projects. So I'd start on Instagram. You know, we're on Facebook. You can definitely find the cage on Facebook because it's everywhere on there right now. And, um, but yeah, I'd say, those are spots to find us. 
Are the uh, are your direct messages or your messages open on Instagram? Oh yeah, yeah, it's an open profile. Cool. So, and I definitely cool. have gotten better at checking the messages there and stuff. And I love Instagram, so find me there. Okay, so neighborhoodfilmcompany.com or neighborhoodfilm on Instagram, and go check out the cage. I know I've said that fifty times, but I'll say it fifty-one. Check out the cage. Great book or great uh, video or great book turn it into a book uh great video <laughs> and uh ricky thank uh thank you so much for joining me here today really had fun you got it dude thank you i'm so thrilled that i got to have this chat with ricky i'm even more thrilled that you got to listen in be sure to follow neighborhood film company on social media And as always, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We don't want you to miss a thing. And if you have a little extra juice in you, please go leave a review on iTunes. It will take you one minute and it will help us out a ton. As you listen to every podcast episode, if someone comes to mind that you think should listen to it, make sure to let them know about it and pass it along to them. Listening to one of these chats may indeed change the very course of their lives. So please do that. Also, connect with us on social media. We're at Let's Give a Damn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we would love to chat with you there. Find out more ways and different ways to support what we're doing by visiting letsgiveadam.com. It is there that you can sign up for our weekly email. It is also there where you can find ways to support what we're doing through financial contributions. Some have already signed up to do that, and we're very, very encouraged. Also, follow me at Nick Lapara on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I would love to connect with you there. That's all for now, friends. I love you. I'm grateful for your attention. And I can't wait to spend more time with you very, very soon. Before I go, don't leave yet. Here's a quote from the incredible Martin Luther King Jr. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Man and woman, I'll just add that. The ultimate measure of a man or woman is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and controversy. We do indeed live in challenging and controversial times. Don't give up. Don't shrink back. Don't ignore or turn your head away. Instead, live boldly and give so many dams about the people and the issues that really matter. Until next week, bye.